It is with that steadfast love of God in mind that I invite you to turn with me to the Word of God as we find it in Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, starting at verse 23. We are going to read Galatians 3, verse 23, to 4, verse 11. Galatians 3, verse 23. Hear the word of God. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So our text this morning is the verses 1 through 7. We'll read that again together. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we were sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God.
Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, boys and girls, do you like riding on the school bus? Maybe not all of you ride on the school bus, but some of you do. Maybe some of you who are adults now had to ride on the school bus when you were children yourselves. I did as well, and I absolutely detested it. The school bus represented a loss of control. You didn't get to decide when the school bus came. You didn't decide, get to decide where it would stop. And you didn't get to decide where you went. All of those decisions were made for you. You had no say in it, and you had to go along with it. So the school bus represented a loss of control. It represented being told what to do. A lot of people see faith that, that way as well. They think it's about losing control over your life. They think faith is about being told how to live and what to do. Now that is true when it comes to every man-made religion. Every man-made system of religion will bring people into bondage to rules and regulations. But this is not true of the Christian faith. Not if it is properly understood. You see, the Christian faith, the true faith, is not primarily about being told what to do. The Christian faith is about what God has done through Jesus Christ. He made us heirs of eternal life. Eternal life is eternal fellowship with God our Maker. Eternal life means to be in His presence forever. That's the ultimate inheritance that God promises to his people. In Revelation 22, he says that they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So yes, there were rules and regulations. God used the rules and regulations of the Old Testament to teach that gospel message to his people. These laws did not exist on their own. These laws were meant to point to something much more glorious in the last few months, we've seen how the Apostle Paul has been trying to convey this to the Galatians. And as you may remember, uh, the Galatians had come to faith. But there were people in their community who were teaching them that if they really wanted to be Christians, they had to go back and submit themselves to the Old Testament laws. So the Galatians wanted to go back to what they thought were their roots. They wanted to go back to keeping these Old Testament laws and regulations. Paul says, look, the law was our guardian until Christ came. But true believers have always been justified by faith. In the Old Testament, believers were justified by faith in the Christ who was to come. In the New Testament, they were justified by faith in the Christ who has come, as we are. Paul had already dealt with us to some extent in the previous section but this chapter 4 and verses 1 through 7 are, are a further explanation. So in a sense, as, uh, as Kelvin, John Kelvin also remarked, these first four verses of, uh, these first seven verses of chapter 4 should have been included with chapter 3. But we'll, um, we'll take it together. It's a pretty big text, the verses 1 through 7. Uh, there is a, a lot in here, but it makes sense to treat it as a unity because this whole 
These seven verses have a Trinitarian focus. This passage tells us that the triune God has made you heirs of eternal life. We'll see that this inheritance was planned by the Father. This inheritance was obtained by the Son. This inheritance is realized through the Holy Spirit. So, we're going to be going through through this passage verse by verse. And if you consider this passage in its entirety, you need to see it against the backdrop of the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, God's people, from the very beginning, were referred to as God's son. Think, for example, of the words that Moses spoke to Pharaoh when God's people were slaves in Egypt. He says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he might serve me. Later on, the Lord spoke through the prophet Hosea, and he said, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So this whole passage must be read against the backdrop of this love of God for his son, Israel. In Jeremiah 31, verse 20, he says, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. So it is this fatherly yearning of God for his children that is in the background of these passages, including the one that we are looking at today. You need to really see it from this perspective of God's love reaching out to his children. Now, some of you may wonder if if they were sons already, why did they still need to be adopted? After all, in verse 5, it clearly says that God sent his son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Why did they need to be adopted if they were sons already? Well, the reason is that Israel collectively rebelled against God, starting with Exodus already. Think about the golden calf episode and everything that happened afterwards. And then the time period of the judges and all of the problems they had with their kings. Later on, the Apostle Paul is reflecting on this and he writes, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. The people of God were under the law, but many of them rejected it. They rejected God. They ignored his law. They detested his prophets. And eventually God took them away from his presence. They were exiled from the promised land. Many of them died in captivity. And there were many Israelites who were legalistic. Many of the religious leaders in the days of Jesus fell into this category. Consider, for example, Luke 18, where he tells the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In verse 9, there he refers to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So there was a whole category of people here who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, who thought that they were acceptable to God because of the things that they did. But there were also those of God's people who were true believers. Think, for instance, of the patriarch Abraham. Think of Job, think of King David, think of Samuel. There, there are so many who could be mentioned. The, here, the list of heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, it is not an exhaustive list. These people were no different from us. They, with their limited knowledge, had a faith that often puts us to shame. They had the same hope that we did. We are united to these people in faith. 
Remember what Paul wrote earlier in Galatians 3 verse 9. Those who are of faith, that's us, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So there's a continuity in the true faith between us and these true believers of the past. The only difference is that we were saved by faith in the Messiah who has come. They were saved by faith in the Messiah who was to come. So they were genuinely part of God's people, but they were like minors. They were like a child who is not of the age of majority, who is still under supervision. In verse 1 of our reading, Paul writes about those who are no different than slaves, even though they are heirs. He is, it says, under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, there were situations in which a child might actually be placed in the care of trustees. This could, for example, happen when um, uh, the father died before the son became of the age of majority. It could also, in rare occasions, happen when the father uh, went on a long journey and he placed the son in the care of trustees until he returned. It didn't happen often, but there are instances of that happening. What is also known is that often the the person who was a a, um, a guardian would be, or or some, maybe not often, but um, uh, sometimes a person who was a guardian could be a family member. He could be a male relative, and then the estate would be run by managers. But the point of comparison is that the child would be under guardians for a limited period of time during which he would have no independence. And in that sense, he was no different from a slave, even though he was an heir. Because just like a slave, he had to be told where to, what to do, where to go, and what to do. So in verse 3, Paul makes this comparison between this guardianship and the situation of the people of God in the Old Testament. And he says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, here is the million-dollar question. What are these elementary principles? They come back again in verse 9. The weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. Well, the word translated as elementary principles can refer to a number of things. Primarily, though, it refers to beginner knowledge. Beginner knowledge. For example, what would be the elementary principles of reading? We would say, well, probably phonics. And if you went even further back than that, it would be your ABCs. Those are the most basic building blocks of reading. The alphabet. So, so elementary principles has, has a range of uh, different meanings, but uh, one important meaning is um, the foundational parts of knowledge in any area, and that includes faith. Now, this is not to say, of course, that the elementary principles are unimportant, A child that doesn't know its ABCs is not going to be able to read more advanced material later on. But if you're able to read at an adult level, it doesn't make sense to um, go back and to only read the cat in the hat, for example. The point that Paul is making is that the Old Testament law is those elementary principles. Now, maybe some of you are wondering, how does this apply to the Galatians? After all, they didn't come from uh, this Jewish background at all. They came from a very heathen background. But in verse 3, Paul, writing as a Jew, says, in the same way we also, an inclusive we, him and the Galatians, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. 
And in verses 8 and 9, he seems to, to be implying that when they go back to Old Testament law, they're actually going back to something that was in their heathen past as well. Now, this is really puzzling. This is a big mystery. Why would he say this? What, what is he trying to get across to us? We need to do a little bit of, of detective work to think, how do we make sense out of this? What is he getting at? And he's writing in a way that, that assumes that what he says would make sense both to his Jewish and to his non-Jewish readers. So how do we make sense out of this? Well, one thing we can say is that uh, heathen religions were often very practical. These people were surrounded by natural forces that they could not control. And often these natural forces were personified and worshipped as gods or goddesses, or at least associated with gods. There was one, um, one god, for example, in Asia Minor called Men Eskinos. Men Eskinos was associated with the moon. And um, in uh, much of Asia Minor, where, where Galatia was, uh, people also worshipped Cybele, the earth goddess. Of course, many of you would be familiar with Zeus, the Greek god of the sky and weather. Maybe you've seen the Disney version at some point. Many others could be mentioned. And the thing about these heathen belief systems is that they do actually follow certain moral principles. Every heathen, every non-Christian religion operates like that. Every false religion operates like that. Every false religion has its own moral principles which its adherents have to follow. And often those do, in some places, substantially overlap with what the Christian faith teaches on a very basic level. For example, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Most religions have some version of the golden rule incorporated into them. Sometimes the people who abide by these religious beliefs can be very moral people in their own way. Maybe you've known some of these people before. They're not Christians, but their sense of morals put us to shame. So Paul is saying, look, these heathen religions have a certain morality to them. But true faith is not about morality. So what is really striking is what he actually is implying about the Jewish faith here. In verse 3, the word we seems to lump both Jews who want to go back to the Old Testament regulations and Gentiles who, who keep their heathen laws in the same category. This comes back in verse 9. He's using the same word there, translated as elementary principles. So what is he implying? He's implying that for them to go back to Old Testament law now is exactly the same as going back to the heathen religion that they have left. Why? Because in both cases, it's just the ABCs of religion. The special revelation of the law that the Jews had without looking forward to Christ is no better than the general revelation that the heathens found in nature and worshipped. Why? Because in both cases, it was revelation without looking to Christ. Now, I want you to really think about how shocking this would have been to the people who heard this for the first time. These Galatians had so much respect 
for the Old Testament laws and regulations and the people who seem to keep them so well. Maybe it seems shocking to us too. But here's what you need to remember. The law was never meant to save. The law was never meant to save. The law was meant to kill. It was meant to confront God's people with their own sins, their own weaknesses, their own limitations. God planned it that way all along because he intended to give us a much better inheritance. Now, maybe you're wondering to yourself, how was it possible for the people in the Old Testament to be saved then? Well, they were saved in exactly the same way as we were. They were saved by looking to God in faith. The law was never meant to save them. The law was there to bring them to the end of themselves so that they would see their utter inability to save themselves and look to God and to God alone for their salvation. Outside of that, whether you're a heathen looking to his gods to be saved or a Jewish person looking to the law to be saved, the outcome is the same. If you kept the law without turning to God in repentance and true faith, you could not be saved. And this, in the end, was the difference between David and Saul. King David and King Saul in the Old Testament, remember? Was it a year ago now, maybe two years ago, that we, we spent um, quite a few months going through the first book of Samuel, and we saw David and Saul together? If you think about it, if you want to talk about morals, Saul was in many ways a more moral king than David. Of course, towards the end, he, he became unhinged, and then he went crazy. But, but before that, he did a lot of things right. But he never turned to God in true repentance and faith. The law was never meant to save. Not then, not now. We are the people of God today, and sometimes we fall into the same mistake. One of the functions of the law today is to confront us with our sin as well. Have you never shuddered when you compare your life to God's law? Have you never been horrified by the remnants of sin that still live in you? Has your conscience never smitten you? Have you never felt crushed by guilt? But what do you do when that happens? If you acknowledge Christ and then try harder... You are no different from these Galatians. The law is there to point us to Christ because Christ was God's true son, the son that Israel never was. And all who turn to him in faith to be saved receive adoption as sons. We'll look at that more closely in our second point. You see, the Father planned all along to give us the inheritance. Look at this. Look at verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. The key phrase here is God sent. God sent is really the gospel in its most abbreviated form because it, it implies a lot of things about us, doesn't it? God had to do it all. And it had to come from him. God sent. And he did send. God sent his son. This is the greatest act of love that this world has ever seen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him 
should not perish but have everlasting life. That's what the inheritance is. The inheritance is eternal life in the presence of God forever. That's what the inheritance is. Paul writes that the Son was born of a woman. That shows Christ's humanity. It shows that he took on a true human nature. He was a man who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was like us, one of us. And born under the law. Born under that Old Testament law. But the difference is he did, he kept it perfectly. He never broke it. Jesus, the gospel is about Jesus. Jesus, the ultimate son of God. The son that God should have had but never did in Israel. The son that Israel should have been and never was. The son that we should have been and never were. He kept every part of God's commandments. He never sinned, not even once. Not in thought. Not in motivation. Not in word. Not in deed. Not once. And he did it so that he alone would have the right to redeem those under the law by his blood. And the Father did that. The Father redeemed us through the Son. The Son redeemed us by giving his perfect life as an atoning sacrifice to the Father. All of our sins were punished in him. As Paul wrote elsewhere, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, in the end, all of us need redemption. All of us need redemption. None of us are exempt. That is why Christ has to be central to our faith, not the law. Christianity is not about morality. It is not about becoming a better version of yourself. It is definitely not about becoming wealthy. It is about redemption. Apart from God's Son, we cannot be redeemed and we cannot be adopted. But through faith in Him, we are. This is undeserved. Through faith in Him, we share in His holiness. We no longer need to keep the Old Testament civil and ceremonial regulations. So it doesn't mean we are now free to do as we see fit. No. No. Precisely because he took the law so seriously, we need to as well. It's a little bit like the school bus illustration from the beginning of the sermon. Most of us no longer ride the bus. But we don't forget what we were taught at school, do we? You don't forget how to read and write now that you're not on the bus anymore. The bus was there to get you to school. Now that you're not on the bus anymore, you don't forget how to read and write. Or maybe some of us are about to move out of the house or we've done so recently. When you move out of the home, you don't forget everything that your parents taught you. You don't go off and ignore their instruction. To be a child of God never means that you stop obeying God. Think of the inheritance. Think about what this means. It means to live with God forever. 
How can you live with God forever if your behavior, your desires, your character is opposed to everything that he stands for? The law is an expression of God's character. How can you become like him if you reject his character? For believers, the law is realized on a much deeper level now. The Holy Spirit has written it on our hearts. And again, the Father intended it this way all along. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Listen carefully. Listen. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So a Christian is able to have a direct and personal knowledge of God mediated through the Holy Spirit, which expresses itself in a life of sincere obedience to God. Now, of course, many of the Old Testament believers served God sincerely as well. They too obeyed the law out of faith. They too were God's children, but they were still subject to that Old Testament law. They had to keep it. All of its complex regulations regarding worship and civil life, they had to keep it all. But as Paul wrote elsewhere, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So in that regard, we are different from them because we have Christ. We have the record of his life in the Gospels. We have, so to speak, seen what they only longed for. We have a much better view of the whole. I mean, look at this. You can get a Bible in, in pretty much any version you want, any kind of binding that you want. We're spoiled for choice here. We have all of it. And we can see now how this inheritance was planned by the Father before time. It was obtained by the Son within time. How do we know? We realize this because of the Holy Spirit within us. And that's our last point, that this inheritance is realized through the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Imagine your vast riches Brothers and sisters, the spirit that dwells in the Trinity dwells in us as well. This is the same spirit who hovered over the waters at the beginning of creation. The very same spirit who fills heaven and earth. The very same spirit who is utterly separate from his creation and yet present everywhere. Is this not an awe-inspiring reality? that no matter where you go in the universe, that God is present. You are never alone. You are never alone because God is with you. You're never alone. And by His Spirit, He's present in you. Already now, at this very moment, we have communion with Him. Already now, we are beginning to collect our inheritance. Already now, we have eternal life. What is eternal life? Jesus defined it for us in John 17, verse 3. He said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. 
Knowing God through the Spirit, that is the direct consequence of living now in the fullness of time. Why did God see fit to choose us for this, to be born in this time? Us people here in this place called Mundajong that most people outside of this area can't even pronounce, let alone find on a map. Why did God choose us? In Luke 10, verse 23 and 24, Jesus said, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, you people in Mundajong. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Don't you realize what a blessing you have by living in the time that you do? And some of you will say, yeah, it's a great time to be alive. Think about all the technology that we have. We can do all this stuff. We have phones now that are more powerful than the computers that put the first people on the moon. We think it's amazing. Maybe we're worried about the time that we're born in. We see all these developments in politics and society, and we wonder, how's this going to work? What? This world in which I'm raising my children, how is this going to work? How do we raise our children in this increasingly godless environment? Well, our passage is suggesting to us it could not be any better than it is now. We have the Spirit. How do we know? Because He prompts our faith so that we recognize God as our Father. The veil that separates us from Him is torn. We have free access to Him. The God of all creation listens to us. In verse 6, Paul writes, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What does Abba mean? And uh, it's an Aramaic word. And um, often in that language, a B is pronounced almost like a V. So, Abba, Abba, like that. It's, it almost sounds like a the sort of word that a, that a baby might say. And you might, have, you might have read before that it means daddy. That is incorrect. That is not what it means. The word daddy in English is far too casual to be an accurate translation of Abba. Abba is just the Aramaic word for father, but it is a very personal and intimate way of referring to your father. It's within the family context that you would say that. That is why before Jesus, almost nobody addressed God in this way. But it's also respectful. It is respectful, and we know that because the term appears in some Jewish legal texts of that time period, which you would never do with the English word, with the English word daddy in an English legal text, right? So that shows Abba does not mean the same thing as daddy in English, but it is, it is a very personal way of referring to God as Father, a very familial way. So why is this word actually significant then? Well, it's worth noting that Jesus also used this word in Mark 14, verse 36, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember? He prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
So right before he was crucified, this was how we refer to his father. The point is that the personal relationship that Jesus had with his father on earth is echoed in our relationship with him. Through his suffering and death, Jesus obtained the inheritance, which is to know God and to know him as our father. This is reflected in our prayer. We know the Lord because his spirit dwells in us. When, when we call God Father, that is actually the spirit within us. In Romans 8, it comes back as well, this idea, and then it is believers themselves under prompting of the Holy Spirit who call God Father. But it is the spirit within us that, that makes this happen. And so Paul says here, He has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And by the way, notice that it says He cries. There's a boldness in prayer that comes with knowing the Lord. It's worth reflecting on our own prayers in this light. Are we growing in boldness in our prayers over time? Dear brothers, I'm talking to you. When you pray for your families, those of you that have families in your care, When you pray for them, on your knees, are you praying with boldness? Are you calling out to God with boldness for his care over the spirits of your children and your wife? Do you have the boldness of a child yourself when you pray? One of the things that's so charming about children is this boldness. They have no inhibitions. They have this boldness in asking things of their parents because of the relationship that they have with them. Imagine, for example, a man running a large business. He's got hundreds, maybe thousands of people that are responsible to him. People maybe even that that tremble when they get called into his office because with one word he can make or break their careers. But this father has a son, a little child, a little toddler. And on bring your child to work day, the toddler can run into the office and say, Abba, Father, and stretch out his hands and know that he will be picked up. That's the kind of boldness we're meant to have when we pray. Maybe you don't have that boldness yet. When you pray, maybe you're not sure what's going on when you pray. Maybe it frustrates you. Why does it take so long to grow in confidence and faith? Why can't you be born with this? Well, it's because we are children. It takes time to grow in your walk of faith with the Lord. It takes time. But God is so patient with us. And here's where your baptismal promises come into the picture because His promises always come first. The promise always comes first. He delights in us. He shows compassion to us. He is with us as we grow in faith through experience. Over time, you will learn to delight in him. And it happens that way in normal life too, doesn't it? Ask ask anybody who was 16 or 15 or 14 at one point in time. Sometimes you don't really value your father or both your parents for that matter until you've grown up. Isn't that true? 
You only really begin to value the relationship more and more once you get older and you have the wisdom of hindsight and you look back and you go, wow, I was hard to live with and my parents were super patient. So you begin to value the relationship more and more over time. But listen carefully. That does not mean that you were any less of a child before then. It just means that you were an ignorant child. So you never live independently from your father. And in that sense, you never ignore his law either. Again, think back to the school bus analogy. At some point you grow up. At some point you don't need to ride the bus anymore. At some point you don't even need to go to school anymore. But that does not mean that you go off and forget everything you were taught and live as you please. See, you cannot lead a self-centered life and live in communion with the triune God at the same time. It doesn't work that way. So it doesn't mean in the end you go back to law-keeping anyway. No, not if you're doing it to be right with God. Anyone who lives a moral life for the sake of being right with God is still in slavery at this very moment. Yes, God calls us to live a holy life, but always as a response to what he has promised us. When we live out of his promises, then life makes sense. It makes a lot more sense than life in the world. Then we come to understand that he already made us heirs of eternal life. That this inheritance was planned by the Father. That it was obtained by the Son. That it is realized through the Holy Spirit. That we are God's children. That we are not slaves. A slave never knows where he stands. He could be taken out of the home at any moment. But a child of God is an heir forever. So may we always live as God's children as we wait for the full revelation of our inheritance. Amen.